this miracle is significant and the very fact that it's together with the resurrection, the only miracle that Jesus did that made its way into all four gospel narratives, not only is it clear from that, but as you start to look at the details, you see the reason why this miracle is key and presented in all four accounts. Because the miracle isn't so much about the miracle. It's not about the way that Jesus fed the multitudes. And even though in John 6, the people clearly go, Oh, this is a sign that he is the prophet like unto Moses. This is like manna from heaven. And they want to make Jesus king because they observe this miracle. As we look at the details today, you will see, I think very clearly from the text, this miracle was not just about feeding 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people that needed a meal that day. There was a, a, a significance to this miracle that specifically related to the training of the twelve and by extension relates to us by way of implication and principle. As you, as you take a, a look at the historical context here of Mark's gospel, if you've been with us as we've been going through the text, you know that Mark has 16 chapters. We're only in chapter 6, but we're already at the end of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. The rest of the narrative is basically the last month or two of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And it depends on, on where you, uh, which calendar you use and how you uh, relate the events and do the, the math of the days and the weeks that pass, but we could be as close to four weeks from the Passover or as far away as about eight weeks at most from the Passover. So this is about the last four to six weeks of Jesus' life and ministry. It's getting closer and closer to time when he is going to go and offer himself up as the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. He is at the very height of his popularity with all the people, especially uh, in the northern area of Israel. And his time with his disciples is short. And so he is spending more and more time focused deliberately and purposefully in training his disciples for his departure, preparing them for carrying on the work after he's gone. In fact, if you look at Mark 6... And you look at the text that we looked at not so long ago, verses 7 to 13, you'll remember that Jesus has just for the first time sent the twelve out two by two, commissioning them to preach for him, to teach for him, to declare the gospel, the, the message of repentance, so that you might be reconciled to God and have a place in his kingdom. And he also authorized them to do miracles. Mark 6, verse 7, Jesus summons the, 12s, the twelve and begins to send them out in pairs. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits, instructing them with regard to the way to behave as they went out and did their mission. And I, and I want to stress this because it relates directly to the miracle, the feeding of the five thousands of the five. Yeah, five thousands, about 20,000 people. He instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey. Notice that, take nothing for your journey and depend upon God uh, to provide for you on your journey since you're doing his work. Don't take any money, don't take a staff, don't take bread or a bag, uh, uh, don't go get an extra pair of sandals, don't get two tunics, etc. Wherever you go, you stay there and trust in God to provide for you, you're doing his work. And so, verse 12, they went out, they preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And if you were here last week, you remember from the text in verses 14 to 29, we saw that, that it, all the hype that is going on with Jesus' ministry and the fact that his ministry is now multiplied sixfold. There are six pairs of guys out doing miracles and preaching the same message while Jesus is doing it. Now you get to the, the apex, if you will, to the top of Jesus' popularity, so much so that people are speculating as to who Jesus must be. He must be one of the Old Testament prophets or like one of the Old Testament prophets. Maybe he's Elijah. You remember the guess, of course, that Herod goes with is he's got to be John the Baptist back from the dead because Herod's got such a guilty conscience. So everybody's talking about Jesus. 
He's got to be from God because of the miracles that he's doing. And now he's enabled his apostles to go out and do miracles in his name. This is big stuff. That's never happened uh, in all of the pages of Scripture, in all of the Old Testament history, in all of redemptive history. Never has God's power been on display like it is here. So people are all talking about Jesus, even Herod's talking about him. Jesus, or excuse me, Herod is in a distant palace having never seen Jesus, and he's talking about him and concerned about who he is. And we're getting closer and closer to when Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem for this final Passover. It's at most eight weeks from today when uh, this event takes place. And it's closer, more likely, to four to six weeks away. And Jesus knows that he is about to lay his life down. And so if you, if you notice in the text, in verse 30, you see that Jesus gathered together, or excuse me, the apostles gathered together with Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Today's text starts with the apostles now coming back from their first mission. Now, before too long here, he's going to send out 72 by 2 to do the same thing. But this is just that first take where he sends out the 12, 2 by 2, and they go out. And now they come back, and they're all gathered together. This is in Capernaum, the northern, northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they're reporting to Jesus all that they had done and taught. And from here we pick up our narrative and you're going to see that Jesus is going to try to get apart from the multitudes now so that he can spend some time with his disciples. They can have a little time to rest and he can have a little personal private time with them and doing more instruction. And when that doesn't play out, he uses the circumstance to facilitate the means by which he can teach them an essential lesson they need to learn moving forward for the rest of their lives in ministry about learning to look up. If you're looking for a title for this morning's message, that's it. Learning to look up. You know, I find it fascinating that over the summer, and Chuck did this on his own, but he decided this time he wanted to go through James. He probably should have run that by his household first, since if you preach on James, and I've done it twice, I'm telling you, that's going to bring a lot of trials into your life because God's going to teach you practically as well as biblically trials when you preach on it so you're a more effective instrument in communicating it to others. I could have told Chuck that in advance, but I just, I didn't want to. But uh, anyways, uh, Chuck is preaching on trials, and one of the things that you will find early on in the book of James is that trials are universal. We all have them, and they're also unique, right? And we are too... Uh, count it all joy when we face many and various kinds of trials. And actually, the, the Greek word there is the word for colors. Various hues, shades, colors. Every single one of us, even if we go through exactly the same trial. We all went through COVID, right? And it was unique, a, a unique experience and set of challenges for each and every one of us, even if we were in the same household. We all are in a sin-cursed and a fallen world, and we all have many and various trials. And yet, for each and every one of us, if you didn't know better, you'd think that a sovereign God is sitting on His throne in heaven and fixing His love upon you as one of His children and orchestrating all of the events of your life to be the perfect set of trials for you to go through to be shaped into the image of Christ. Which, by the way, is exactly what's happening. Read Romans 8. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And nothing can separate you from his love if you're one of his. And that includes you, that includes the forces of darkness, and that includes any and all circumstances you might ever face. God is so sovereign over all of them. And as you go through them, one of the things that you need to learn is that those trials are sovereignly ordained and intended not only to shape you, but to give you an opportunity to serve him. The apostles are being prepared to serve God by going out and speaking the message of the gospel to the very same people who will, not long from now, crucify our Lord and Savior. You've already seen what they did to John the Baptist last week, right? 
What do you think they're going to do to the apostles? Judas is going to betray the Lord and he's going to take his own life. Then he will be replaced. And out of the 12 apostles, you can even throw Paul in there if you want. Out of the apostles, out of all of them, you know that only John, according to either scripture or tradition, only the apostle John was not martyred. Did you know that? History tells us all the rest of them. Paul was beheaded in Rome. Peter was crucified in Rome. James was killed by Herod uh, early in the book of Acts. Now the rest of the apostles, according to church history, we're told were all martyred in many and various ways. Except for John, who was exiled in the Isle of Patmos and preserved to the end of his life so that he could write the book of Revelation for us. These guys are in for it. These guys need to be prepared to be persecuted. And they need to be prepared to trust in God. And when they get to a place where they realize they're out of their depth and doing what God has commanded them is beyond their own abilities, you know what they need to learn? They need to learn to look up and ask God to enable and empower them to do what He has commanded them to do. And you know something? For you and me in our Christian lives, the same principle holds true. Now, I'm not saying you should look for God to give you the ability to multiply the loaves and the fish when you get home today and realize, oh, I forgot to go to the store and I'm low on bread. I'm not saying you should look for God to empower you to do miracles or empower you to to write authoritative scripture. But I am telling you, if you're a Christian, there are times when you are going to be out of your depth. And you know what you need to learn is the same lesson that Jesus is teaching the apostles here. You need to learn to look up. You need to learn to trust in God and ask God to enable you to do what he has commanded you to do in his word. And then in faith and obedience, step out and do it and trust that he will supply. And there are times, folks, when this is, this is, this is the rubber meets the road in your own Christian life. There are times when this is when you're struggling with your flesh with some sin of bitterness or lust or greed or covetousness or some, some sin you're trying to battle with and you just can't see it. Then you need to ask God to help you, not take it away, help you obey. You get out of your depth, ask Him to supply, and then trusting that He will give it to you, step out in obedience and obey Him. And watch how suddenly you're able to do in His power, through His Spirit, what you could never do in your own flesh. Sometimes it's just getting up the courage to go and repent. Sometimes it's just getting control of your heart and being willing to forgive. You ever been there? You get offended, and when somebody wants to come back, I'm so sorry. Well, no matter how they say it, they won't quite say it right, and you can use that as a justification not to forgive. You know, the only problem with that is that Ephesians 5 says you need to forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. And by the way, that's a command. Oops. So I guess I have to forgive. And so now it's me that's sinning. But they sin first. This isn't fair. You're right. It's not fair. You should go to hell for immediately for disobeying God. But instead of being fair, he is showing you grace. Now, again, you want to tell me why you're not forgiving? Or maybe, maybe you sinned, and it just is so hard to get yourself to humble yourself and go and say, you know what, I was wrong, will you please forgive me? I wouldn't even know where to start, Lord. I don't know the words. You know what you do know? You do know you sinned, you do know you need to repent, and you do know you need to go and acknowledge that you sinned, not just to God, but to the person you offended, and you need to ask them for forgiveness. So ask him to give you the words and step out in faith and go and start talking. And when you talk, don't just say, I'm so sorry. You know, dear, it's just that you were a jerk and I was having trouble. And so you notice how immediately I just turned that into it was your fault. Okay, put all that aside. Ask God to help you just accept responsibility for your sin and repent and ask for forgiveness. And you really just just look to him and ask him to give you what you don't have in yourself to do what he has commanded you to do. Ask him for it and he'll give it to you. 
You remember what Jesus said in the upper room to the disciples? This is later, but probably only about four or five weeks after teaching them this lesson or or working to begin to teach them this lesson in the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. In these two miracles, Jesus is teaching them to look up. And by the time he gets to the upper room, he says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll give it to you. Oh, cool, I can ask for a Ferrari. Well, if you need a Ferrari to accomplish what God has commanded you to do, he'll give it to you. My guess is, well, my guess is you'll never find a context where it's the Ferrari you need. Maybe a bus pass. A broken bus. With uh, creaky seats, but I think you get the message. What we need to do in our Christian life, what the apostles needed to learn in their Christian life and ministry is to look up. It's to look up. There are two miracles that Jesus does that we see in the text today, verses 30 through 56, that are done specifically and primarily aiming to teach the disciples to look up, to depend on God, to depend on Christ in life and ministry. When they're given a command by God, a challenge by God, uh, an assignment by God, and, and they realize that they do not have the strength, the ability in themselves to do it, you know what they need to learn to do? To ask God to provide for them so they can obey Him. And that's what I want to teach you this morning. Now, there's a couple of ways we can outline this. I, we can either outline this in the simple way, I want to show you two miracles that Jesus does seeking to teach his disciples to learn to look up. The miracle, the feeding of the multitudes and the walking on the water. That's 30 to 44 and 45 to 56. Or in a more Chuck-like approach, we can give you two T's. Ready? Teaching the lesson and testing the students. That's also for Mike. This is pretty much like what's in class, right? First I teach the lesson and then I give you the quiz to test you to see whether you got it. It might surprise you to realize that the walking on the water miracle really was just the test after having taught the, the lesson in the first place. But that's what I want to show you. We'll start with the feeding of the multitudes, the teaching of the lesson. We'll start back in verse 30. Jesus has sent the 12 out two by two, and now they come back. They've gone out. They've done just like Jesus told them to do. They've depended upon him. They've preached the word, and they've done miracles, and they all get back together. Verse 30, the apostles gather together with Jesus, and they report to him all that they had done and taught. And can you imagine how that conversation must have gone? Shortly after here, you don't have to turn with me, but in, in Luke chapter 10... We're told that shortly after this, when Jesus sends the 70 out and they all come back, uh, Luke 10, 17 says the 70 returned with joy and they were reporting to Jesus saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. <laughs> Jesus says, behold, I've given you authority like that. Nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. You think the big deal is that you're doing these miracles? <laughs> I got news for you. I can empower anybody to do those miracles. You, you know what you need to really rejoice in? What you need to be really uh, happy about is the fact that you really are mine. And I find that particularly fascinating since Judas isn't. And he was empowered uh, when the 12 went out to do miracles. The big deal isn't being able to do stuff. The big deal is whether you know God as your personal heavenly father. And when you have, whether you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that's what you rejoice over. In any case, they come back in Mark 6 and verse 30. They get back together with Jesus, all of them now. And they report to him all that they had done and taught, which shows you that they were faithful. They went out, they taught the message that he told them to teach. 
They did the things that he told them to do. Can you imagine? Hey, I went to this place and I had to run in with this and turned out there was a demon and I, was, I cast them out. And, and you should have seen when I went through and I shared the same, you know, you, you did the beatitude so many times, so I just kind of did that same beatitude message myself and called people to repent. You know, this, this little village, there's about a half of them that came forward. It was awesome, Lord. So they, they do all of that. And you get to verse 31, and Jesus says to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded, you could even translate that remote, uh, to a remote place and rest a while. Now, why did Jesus want to separate them, himself and his disciples, from all the multitudes? Uh, Because at this point, he is so popular. And imagine, imagine how popular he would be today if he was doing miracles and how many people would be cramming in around trying to get some time with him just trying to touch him, trying to see him, trying to hear him. And then if he sends his disciples out two by two, and you hear about the, even the apostles are doing miracles in his name, can you imagine what the hype today would be like? You know, there's a lot of famous people that, that are very miserable, and some of them commit suicide and run to drugs and alcohol because as soon as you become popular, all of a sudden, all people want is you all the time. And all of a sudden, being all that popularity as a musician or an artist or an author or a movie star or a sports figure or whatever, all of a sudden you realize with all that hype comes all of this people needy. So you can see there at the end of verse 31, it says, For there were many people coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. There were so many people that wanted time and attention of Jesus. They wanted him to do miracles for him. They wanted to see him do miracles. They wanted to hear him teach. They, they, they were so demanding of him and his apostles, they didn't even have time to eat. Tell me something. Some of you moms, you ever have a day like that where you are so busy taking care of everything? Look at that. Look, I saw that little grin. Where you are so busy taking care of everybody else, you don't even have time to eat? Can you imagine if that was your life for three years? So they went away in the boat to a secluded or a um, remote place by themselves. This is Jesus uh, getting his disciples. It's probably Peter's boat. It's definite here. So it's probably the same one they always use. Probably Peter's fishing boat since he has given up fishing in order to follow Christ. So they just made use of that boat. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. When you look at the parallel accounts, it's very, very clear. All they did was leave that northwestern shore, the Sea of Galilee, and they just, they just went out from shore a little ways, and they headed straight over to the east, to, the, uh, to that northeastern shore in the area of the Sea of Galilee, which is a little bit remote place. There's no immediate villages in the neighborhood, and so it's, it's not a desert, okay? It's not a wilderness. It's not like going out here to the tumbleweeds. Uh, in fact, when you see when he multiplies the loaves and feeds everybody, they sit down on the green grass. So this is not, this is not the, uh, the, the, the desert idea out here. So when we talk about remote or secluded, we don't mean deserted as in, as in Mojave. But it is a place where there isn't a village. There aren't, there aren't immediately around homes or anything like this. It's just a big open grassy area. The problem here is, Verse 33, the people saw them going. The people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and they got there ahead of them. And as a side note here, Matthew 14 in the parallel text, Matthew tells us that Jesus had also just heard about what Herod had done in executing John. And so uh, uh, there's also a factor in which Jesus is purposefully getting away from Herod's immediate uh, authority and getting out into a more uh, remote location. And so he takes his disciples, they hop on the boat, they just sail over uh, to the remote corner there in the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee, And and before they get there, because people recognize the boat and because people recognize them on the boat. And if you've ever been to Israel, you know, from the shore of the Sea of Galilee, pretty much all the way around it, you can see even the opposite coast most of the time. So he's not all that far. uh, They're not all that far 
off of the shore. So you can easily see it's them. You recognize the boat. You see where they're going. If you just tool around on shore, they even, some of them, beat them there. Some of them get there first. That's what Mark says in verse 33. Some of them even got there ahead of them. So I'm trying to get away from the multitudes, and the multitudes are so persistent, they follow me, and I get off the boat, and here's the people. And it even says, uh, many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities. So as word gets out and people are running around, pretty soon, we may not be in Capernaum anymore or any of the local cities, but people from all over are hearing about it. And by word of mouth, everybody's gathering now in this remote location. So Jesus is trying to get alone with his disciples so they can rest and so he can spend some time personally with them. And it just doesn't work out. Verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. He saw a large crowd. Now tell me something, what would you do? Look, folks, I've spent, I've spent the better part of the last three years doing nothing but miracles for all you guys. I need to spend some time with these guys. Everybody get out. When Jesus went ashore, he saw the large crowd and he felt what? Compassion. You know what that word compassion literally means in the Greek? It means compassion. Sympathy, pity. His heart went out to them. He wasn't annoyed. He wasn't frustrated. He wasn't bothered. He didn't blow up. He didn't get angry. He didn't go, go, dear, oh, dear friends and neighbors. I just need some time with my disciples. He looked at the people. He saw their plight and he felt sympathy for them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He looked at them and he saw how desperate they were in their need. And you know what's really fascinating? Most of them that are following him are just after him because they want to see the show or they want to benefit from him. They're not really believing in him. They're not really devoted to him. They're not really uh, committed to him. And he still looks at them with sympathy and with compassion and pity. It'll be the same thing when he sits on the great white throne and condemns those to a Christless eternity in the lake of fire. He will look on them with compassion and hold them eternally accountable for their refusal ever to repent. But he will take no pleasure from the death of the wicked. That's what, that's what Ezekiel says. God takes no pleasure from the death of anyone who dies. Repent. And that's the heartbeat of Jesus throughout the whole of his life and ministry. And you see it even here. His intention is to, to, to invest while he still has time in his apostles. But when these people follow him around the shore and he sees them looking like sheep in desperate need of someone to really take care of them, he begins to teach them many things. Matthew, in the parallel account, also adds that he healed their sick as well, which means that once again, he made himself fully available to all the people to meet any and all of their needs. And Mark here just says he began to teach them many things, which again shows you Mark is not so interested in helping you to see who Jesus is by telling you what he said. Mark is really fixed on helping you see who Jesus is by telling you what he did. And that's why I want you to watch as we go through the rest of these verses. This is an account focused specifically on what Jesus did so that you get it. Verse 35 says, when it was already quite late, which means it's getting close to sundown. His disciples came to him and they said, this place is desolate. It's very remote. Doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean desolate in the sense of a desert. It means remote. And it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, I want you to keep your finger here in Mark 6, and I want you to turn to John 6 to the parallel with me. 
and I want you to see his account. Because there's a really interesting observation that could be made here. John 6, verse 1. We're told after these things that are narrated in John 4 and 5, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias, some call it, or the Sea of Gennesaret, uh, some have called it. It depends on whether you're living in Galilee, or whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, whether you're Roman, etc. All those names are for the same body of water, the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Gennesaret. And so Jesus goes to the other side, that is away from Capernaum, over that northeast corner, like what we talked about, and a large crowd followed him. He doesn't bother telling you that he was trying to get his disciples away from the multitudes. He just says a large crowd followed him over there. And they followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Again, they're not following him because they recognize him for who he is. They're not following him because they want to be his disciples or because they want to learn from him. They're following him because the miracles are cool or because they want a miracle. And when Jesus went up on the mountain, uh, uh, yeah, when, verse 3, when Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was near. We're, we're near the time when Jesus is going to offer up himself as the once-for-all sacrifice. Probably about a month away. And therefore, Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing the large crowd that was coming to him. So he gets there. He gets off the boat. There are a number of people there already. But he can also see how many other people are, are assembling. So this is the beginning of the day. He gets up on the mountain, sits down with his disciples. And I want you to notice, seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This is before the whole crowd is assembled. This is before the end of the day. And he asks Philip, one of the twelve, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? Why does he ask him that? Well, because this, this is a real logistics problem. I mean, this is going to be probably 20,000 people, 30,000 people by the time it's all over. Philip, you need to figure out the solution to this problem, right? Oh, no. <laughs> Verse 6, this he was saying to test him because he himself knew what he was intending to do. He doesn't ask Philip to solve the problem for him. He asks Philip because he wants to test Philip. And by extent, uh, extension, test all the rest of the disciples, saying, this is a problem you cannot solve on your own, Philip, and so I'm going to give it to you to figure out. This he was saying to test him because he himself knew what he was intending to do. And Philip answered. So this is Philip's answer at the beginning of the day. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Now, why do you think that Philip said 200 denarii is not sufficient? Because it's a nice round number? Maybe. Because it's a big number? It's not really that big a number. A denarius is one day's wage for the common day laborer, which means it's about enough food to feed one household. Now, if you figure an average household is maybe two adults and four kids, or maybe some of you want to be like some of you, uh, it's two adults and eight kids. Okay, so let's just say a denarius feeds 10 people. 200 denarii, okay, feeds how many people? 2,000. 2,000. That number, 2,000, is a little lower than 5,000, and that's just the men. It's probably closer to 20,000. So that's enough to feed a tenth of the people that look like they're going to show up. Why does Philip supply that number? My, my guess is because that's the amount of money that they had total on hand. Remember that Judas was the keeper of the money bag? So there, he was the one that used to pilfer from the money bag. I'm going to guess that he says 200 denarii is not enough for everybody to get even a little bit because 200 denarii is how much they had on hand at the moment. And he says, I go and buy, uh, I take all of our money and buy bread for all these people. There's, it's not going to satisfy. And at that point, we go back to Mark 6. When it's already quite late, guess what that means? 
Jesus has let them think about it all day. All day long, Jesus has just been teaching. All day long, Jesus has just been doing miracles and, and healing people and ministering to people. And he hasn't even stopped because you'll notice it's already quite late and his disciples come to him. The sun's starting to go down and the disciples come to him and say, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. You need to send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy themselves something to eat. Because Philip has already helped them all to see, we ain't got enough money to pay for it. Jesus, you got to stop teaching. We got to call a halt to this. Because there, there is no earthly practical solution. Verse 37, remember from John 6 that in the beginning of the day, Jesus said he knew what he was intending to do. We get to the end of the day and they say, hey, you got to dismiss all these people. Jesus answered and said, you give them something to eat. If you look at the parallel in Matthew, uh, you will see that Jesus says, actually said they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. I don't have to dismiss them. You need to meet this need. And they said to him, all the disciples, notice the plural. What do you think the disciples have been talking about all day? How are we going to do this? How are we going to solve this? Jesus gave us this problem. How do we do it? And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? Is that what you're asking us to do? Just take all of our money? See how this is why I think the 200 denarii is all they have. Shall we go do that? Shall we take all of our money and go buy bread? It's not going to be anywhere near enough for even everybody to get a little tiny bit. It seems like a, a, just a fruitless effort. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. John 6 tells us that Andrew was the one that brought a little boy up, and he had his little uh, travel basket that his mom had probably made for him and had five little barley loaves. Now, just so we're clear, a loaf is not like a loaf of bread like what you buy at the store. A barley loaf is a flat bread, okay? It's, a, it's just a thin flat bread five flatbread loaves and a couple of fish is a meal for a little 10-year-old boy for today. That's what we have. We have one kid still has his Avengers lunchbox and he, and he didn't eat today, so that's it. That's what we got, right? How many loaves do you have? Go and look. They found out and they said five and two fish. So he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. So it's, it's a remote area, not a deserted area. It's a comfortable picnic area. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, which, by the way, is how it's so easy for uh, all of the gospel writers to remember how many multitudes were there, how many actual people were present. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and he looks up to heaven. Why? Because he's going to pray. He's got five loaves and two fish to feed 20,000 people. How are you going to do that? Well, he's going to look up and ask the Father to provide. So he blessed the food and broke the loaves and kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. So he breaks the loaves. So I got five loaves, and he starts breaking them. And they start handing them out into the groups. And he starts divvying out the fish into the groups. Five loaves, two fish, 20,000 people. What happens? They all ate and were satisfied. Verse 42. You know that word satisfied? You can underline that word. That's the word cortazo in the Greek. It's a word that is normally used in reference to feeding animals. It literally means to be all foddered up. Have you ever taken care of uh, cattle or horses or whatever? To, to have an animal all father, foddered up means it's full. It's not eating anymore. This is like, this is like going to, to uh, the, the barbecue here in a few weeks at the Staley's house. 
And with all the tri-tip and the potatoes and all the other stuff that all of you guys bring, when dessert finally comes out, which I still to this day do not know why we don't eat dessert first. It's the best part. That's what you should always have room for. That's the biblical approach. You have your dessert first, and then if there's room, you eat the rest. But I digress. To be satisfied means when, it, when the desserts come out, you're like, yeah, I'm good. I'm all fodded. I'm full. I'm satisfied. That's what that word literally means. It's when an animal does, says, you can put as much grain down there as you want. I'm not going to eat anymore. I'm full. It's all I want. It's not just all I need to make it through. That's all I want. Jesus has five loaves and two little fish. A little boy's lunch, sack lunch. That was in a wick, probably in a wicker basket like they always use, but you know what I mean. And with that, he feeds 20,000 people, probably more, but 20,000 people until they don't want any more. And if that isn't good enough, look at verse 43. They picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces. You say, oh man, broken pieces? Why is it only broken pieces left? Well, did you not read at the beginning where Jesus took the loaves and broke them all? <laughs> all there are is broken pieces. But when you gather up all the broken pieces from five little loaves, you know what you suddenly have? You have 12 baskets full of those pieces and also of fish. Now, here's a good thought. Why do you think that there are 12 basketfuls left after Jesus does this miracle? Well, you know, Jesus in his powers of creation and his ability to do miracles, he just kind of did the math in his head and as a round number, and he wanted to shoot a little high, and it just was a little bit of overkill. You think that's what it was? Or do you think maybe because there are 12 disciples and that they didn't have the ability to meet the needs of these multitudes, Jesus not only provided for all of the multitudes and the twelve to eat that night, he also provided the meal for them for tomorrow as a practical lesson on when you get to the place where you realize, I've told you to do something you can't do in your own strength, you look to God and he'll give you everything you need and more to do what I've told you to do. You tell me, which is, which is more likely? Some of the commentators have even questioned about, well, what about Jesus? Why isn't there a basket left for Jesus? Well, the disciples would have shared with Jesus. I don't think Jesus needed to learn the lesson. I don't think Jesus needed a basket to convince him that God would provide for him tomorrow. I think the reason there are exactly 12 baskets full is because we have exactly 12 disciples, and this is not just about feeding the multitudes who are superficial in their interest in Jesus. I think this is a very purposeful miracle aimed to teach the disciples, when you get to that place where you realize, I've given you something to do, and you can't do it in your own strength, what should you do? Look to me and ask, and I will give you not only everything you need, but beyond that. And they not only had broken pieces of bread, they also had fish. 44, there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. And in Matthew chapter 14, verse 21, I just want to read this to you. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. That's what it literally says in Mark 14. So this is why I say we're probably talking 20, 30,000 people that ate. At least 10, but probably closer to 20 or 30,000 people who ate. You ever gone to a Warriors game or a Lakers game or a, a, a well, I won't say a Dodger game because nobody shows up to the third inning and they're all gone by the seventh inning, so I don't know how many actually go. But, but uh, you ever go to a, a, a sports game where there's 20 or 30,000 people there? That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Just think about the parking lot, okay? Think about the lines on the way in and out. Believe it or not, that's way more people than go to the mall at Christmas time. And that seems like a horde, right? 20, 30,000 people, and Jesus just fed them all with five loaves, a couple of fish. And when he's all done, there's exactly 12 baskets. By the way, those baskets, those would have been the little small wicker traveling baskets about the size of a lunchbox or maybe a little bit bigger. And that means that they all had supplies to eat 
God provided not only for everybody that night, for each of the disciples to be covered for tomorrow. You're covered for tomorrow. There's the, there's the object lesson Jesus just taught him. Notice how much Mark doesn't focus on Jesus saying stuff, but Jesus doing stuff so that he can show you who he is. Who is Jesus? He's God. He's the one who has called them to himself. He is the one who has ordained them to go out and speak and act for him. And he is the one who is now teaching them to depend upon him. Now that brings us to the second miracle, the walking on the water. We've seen the teaching of the lesson. Now we're going to see the testing of the students and see whether they got it. Here's, we see, here's where we see what grade the, the apostles get in their apostle class. Apostleship 101. How did they do? Verse 45. Here's where the test begins. Immediately. There's our word. You know what it literally means in the Greek? Immediately. As soon as they get done. He, Jesus told them to go pick up the pieces. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that, but the other Gospels do. Jesus instructed them to go pick up the pieces so that they would see exactly how much was left was exactly enough for each of them to have their meal covered for tomorrow. And immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. Now, there is an interpretive issue here. Bethsaida literally means house of fish. And was it, is it re- really referring to Gennesaret or whatever? Uh, let's just say it's not as, as difficult an issue as, most, as many commentators want to make it. It's very possible that there were a couple of little towns around the edge of the sea that were named Bethsaida, a small little house of fish, a little stopping place, just like there were multiple McDonald's in a, in a city or whatever. It's also possible there are multiple ways that individual towns are referred to. But he sends them as, uh, uh, and and by the way, it's probably a reference to Gennesaret because that's where they wind up as we go through the rest of the narrative. But he sends them to the other side. So now they're in the the northeast corner and he's going to send them down over to the western shore, a little bit south and over to the west. And he's going to send them ahead in the boat while he himself is dismissing the crowd. So he's dismissing the crowd, and it literally says, after bidding farewell, literally in the Greek says, after saying goodbye, right? I just picture him as the stewardess. Bye-bye, 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 and he dismisses the thousands of people, okay? The disciples have gotten in the boat, and they're heading out. It's dark now. They're starting to go across the water. It's 8, 9 o'clock, whatever. They're heading out across the water, and Jesus is saying goodbye. They all go, and then Jesus heads up to the mountain to pray. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Now, when it's evening, the boat is in the middle of the sea, and he is alone on land. How did that happen? Well, because he sent them across on their own ahead of him. And he stayed behind and dismissed the crowd. And he went up and he started to pray. So now we get into about midnight or later. John 6 verse 19 tells us that they were 25 or 30 stadia out to sea. That's about three and a half miles. And from where they are to where they're going, it's about a five mile trek across the sea in the boat. So they need to go about five miles across the Sea of Galilee. If you've ever been there, it's not all that big. During the daytime, you can literally see from side to side. And keep in mind, at least four of these guys are professional fishermen who've been earning their living since they were kids on this very sea. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And John says they're about three and a half miles out. So they're a little over halfway. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Now, the fourth watch of the night would be between 3 and 6 a.m. Now, if he sends them out, even if I go, even if I push it, if he sends them out at like 9 o'clock, and let's say it's about 3 a.m., How long have they been at the oars? Six hours. Now, are all these guys uh, doofuses who have no idea how to handle a boat at night? At least four of them are professional fishermen, right? I suspect it's the professional fishermen 
who were probably going, guys, you just need to row harder. I know what I'm doing here. This is the way you do it. It's taken, but, but Peter, it's taken all night. Well, put your back into it. Thomas, let's go. Matthew, you spent too much time at the tax collector table not working for a living. Let's go. Three and a half hours, and they're only a little over, or excuse me, six hours, and they're only three and a half miles across, a little over halfway across. Why? Because the wind is against them. In fact, I think it's Matthew. Is it, is it Matthew or John? I think it's Matthew that says the, they were being battered by the waves. I mean, the sea, it's, if you didn't know better, <laughs> you'd think that God had taken this very night to bring a storm and to bring a contrary wind upon the sea to make it nigh unto impossible for them to get across the sea in their own strength. And Jesus, seeing them straining at the oars, that word straining literally means to just be spending your fighting in torment. It's the same word sometimes it's used in reference to torture. Being tortured by the oars, trying to get across the sea and do the simple thing Jesus told us to do. He gave us one task, get in the boat and go across the sea. It's like five miles we've been at this all night long and haven't made it. We're barely over halfway. Jesus sees this somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. He came to them. Well, how did he do that? He's walking on the sea. How does he do that? He's God. He's God. He walks across the water. You know what the closest, uh, uh, the shortest distance between two points, you know what it is? The straight line. Straight line from the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee uh, to the Midwestern shore. Straight line across the water. Jesus doesn't have a boat, so he walks. He just walks across the water. I love this last part. A lot of commentators have problems with this. I don't. Uh, Seeing them straining at the oar because the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to what? Pass them by. Hi, guys. See ya. Meet you on the other side whenever you finally learn the lesson. Keep in mind, at least four of these guys are professional fishermen. The fourth watch of the night means they've been at this for probably as many as eight hours. And like I said, most amazing to me of all is that he intended to pass them by, which means he fully intended to just leave them there struggling until they what? figured it out so you know i some some commentators are going well it can't mean that because that would mean that jesus is thoughtless or showing off or heartless or indifferent to the plight of the disciples those are all wrong that's clearly wrong you want to know why jesus was going to just walk past them because he already taught them what to do and when, and the reason he was going to walk past is to remind them who he is. Do you know it's not so long ago that we were studying in Mark's gospel that they were in the same boat on the same sea and Jesus was asleep. And you remember what hit the boat? A massive storm to the extent that even Peter and John and Andrew and James are afraid we're going to sink. Don't you care about us? So they wake him up. And he gets up and goes, you of little faith, and rebukes the wind and the wave. The wind immediately stops blowing, which, what's the only way you can do that? If you're God and have total control over your creation. And the water instantly goes calm, which means he just violated all the laws of physics and of momentum and everything else. It goes calm instantly. Jesus has already shown him, shown his disciples he has total control over all the elements in this very boat, on this very sea. They're struggling and struggling him. He told them to go across. They aren't making their way across. They keep fighting it. He just told them, hey, listen, when you got a practical matter that you don't have the strength in yourself to do, what do you need to do? Look to me, look up. Well, they've been at this all night. I see they're still struggling. Well, I'm going to tool by and they can see me. And I'm just going to go all the way. And then finally they're going to go, oh, Lord, help us and, and maybe learn, right? <laughs> Not so much. Verse 49. 
When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were what? Terrified. Ah! The word terrified literally means terrified. When it says they cried out, that word cried out literally means to scream. It's that frightened scream of somebody that is genuinely terrified in fear of their life. It's a shout of an angry person in rage or the shout of a person possessed by a demon. That's a loud shout. You want to know why Jesus stopped? He stopped because of his compassion for them. Immediately he spoke with them and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. Notice, as soon as he gets in the boat, what happens to the wind? It stops. It doesn't even say that he silenced it. it. It just stopped in obedience to him. He doesn't have to say anything. That's how powerful God is. If God is your father, you don't need to fear anything. You don't need to fear any circumstance. You just need to trust him and obey. And when you realize in your own strength that he has given you something that is too hard for you to do in your own strength, what do you need to do? You need to learn to look up and just ask him to supply you what you need to obey him in this context. I think most of us, when we pray in those situations, we are asking primarily for God to do what? Take the trial away. You know what your Heavenly Father will not do? Because it stunt your growth in spiritually. He will not take the trial away. It would remove the ability for you to glorify Him as you go through something that's hard. He will not do that. You know what He will do? For your good and, eternal, and His eternal glory? He will provide you what you need to honor Him and go through it. And if you're truly a believer, that's what you, deep down in your new heart, that's what you want to do. You'll notice this is Mark's gospel. And so unlike Matthew, Mark doesn't even point out that when Jesus shows up and says, take courage, it's me, don't be afraid. Mark doesn't even point out that Peter goes, well, if it's really you, prove it uh, and have me come out of the boat and walk on the water. I think Peter doesn't talk about that very much. Not like some commentators say, because of his failure. You have no problem in seeing Peter talk about his failures. I think it's so Peter doesn't talk about it because he doesn't want to direct attention to himself. But if we went to Matthew, I could show you that Jesus showed them actually that night that he even has the ability to give his disciples because he gave it to Peter. As long as Peter trusted in him, he gave it to Peter the ability to do even what he was doing and walking on the water. God can supply his people anything and everything they need to do what he has commanded us to do. And that's the lesson that he is working diligently to teach them. Verse 51, he got into the boat with them. The wind stopped and they were utterly astonished because they had not gained any insight from the loaves, but their heart was hardened. You want to know why they struggled all night? You want to know why they panicked when Jesus showed up? You want to know why he had to get in the boat and rescue them and take them the rest of the way to shore? Because they didn't learn the lesson. And you know what we need to do? We need to learn the lesson. And we need to not look at them as though somehow they were daft. I dare say, in my life, there are many times when I have flunked this same quiz there are many times i dare say in each of our lives when we have failed the same test and been amazed when we finally wake up when god steps in to rescue us or amazed when we say lord this is beyond me we please just help me obey you and all of a sudden have you ever noticed when you get to the end of yourself and ask him to supply and then in faith uh, you step out in obedience to what he said and just do what he says. Have you ever noticed how suddenly it's almost like it just works out? You ever notice how abundant God's grace is when you trust and obey? Verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. 
So they docked there. John 6, 21 even tells us, John remembers that when Jesus got into the boat, they were there immediately. They did the last hour, a mile and a half in no time. The storm stopped, and when they looked up, they were there. Bang. Some commentators say that it was a miracle how fast they got there. That's even possible. This much I know, as soon as Jesus got in the boat, the wind stopped. And then they got there. Trial over. Problem solved by God again. And it could have been solved long ago if you'd have asked for help when you realized it was beyond your ability to do it. As we close this morning, I just want you to notice in the last few verses that when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized them and they ran about that whole country and began to carry there on their pallets those who were sick to the place that they heard he was. His popularity is still as high as it's ever been. He doesn't, he do, Mark doesn't bother to mention uh, all the details of the Bread of Life discourse that John records for us. That's all John 6. If you want to read what happened when the people chased them around the shore and caught up with them, John writes about all that in John 6. But again, Mark's not interested in primarily telling you what Jesus said. He wants to show you what Jesus did. So he just summarizes it here. They saw him, they saw where he was, and so they all run to him. They bring all their sick to him and Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that, he might, that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. Jesus continued to make himself fully available to be a ministry of grace and kindness and favor to everybody, even those who were just superficial in their interest in him, even those who were just using him. He showed grace and favor. What does all this teach us? It teaches us that we need to learn to look up. God has commanded us many things that are hard. He has given us many uh, responsibilities. They're all outlined in Scripture. Is it easy to be God's kind of husband? Is it easy to be God's kind of father? Is it easy to be God's kind of wife? Is it easy to be God's kind of mother? Is it easy to be God's kind of man or woman, boy or girl? Is it easy? Is it easy to obey God and glorify God through health circumstances, through relational circumstances, through trials and tribulations? Is it easy? Can you do in your own strength everything you need to do to obey God? Can you take a stand for God in a lost and a fallen world all day, every day, and not depend upon Him? No. But He has given you His Holy Spirit, not just as a seal guaranteeing your inheritance, but as the very means by God through which you might draw upon his strength and glorify him by obeying him and doing what he's commanded us to do. And that isn't just doing the Great Commission. It's just living a Christian life for him. You lack boldness, ask him, and then step out in faith and speak for him. You lack courage, you lack conviction, you lack discernment. I don't know how many times I have talked to people saying, well, you know, I'm just waiting for God to give me a sign. Here's your sign. Read it. Well, I don't know if I should buy this one or that one. I don't know if I should uh, do this or do that. Well, does the Bible say to join a church? Does the Bible say to share the gospel? Does the Bible say to get baptized? Does the Bible say to ask for forgiveness when you sin from the person you sin against? Does the Bible say to forgive others when they sin against you? Does the Bible say be God's kind of husband and love your wife as Christ loved the church and don't get frustrated with her? Does the Bible say submit to your husbands as to the Lord in everything, even when he's wrong? Yes. I just really have trouble doing it. Then ask him for help and then step out in faith and obedience and watch him supply what you need to live for him. Learn to look up. And don't look up and then you wait for him to do it. God is not interested in in artificial intelligence. He is not interested in robot worship. You want to know why he doesn't do it for you? You want to know why? Because then it wouldn't be you doing it. He's looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. From the heart, empowered by him, because you want to do it, because he told you to do it. 
Did the apostles ever learn the lesson? In closing, look at Acts 4 with me. I think you'll see they did. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been arrested by the same people that condemned Jesus to the cross. And they are threatened with their lives and released. Verse 23 of Acts chapter 4 says, When Peter and John, when they had been released, they went to their own companions, that is, to the rest of the apostles and to those that are part of the early church, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, the Sanhedrin, the same rulers that condemned and crucified Christ. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and prayed, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. You, O God, are in control of everything, not them. You are who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise foolish things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Even when Christ was crucified, it was your hand that was behind the whole thing to accomplish our salvation, O God. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant your servants may what? Escape from this threat? Escape from this fate? No. Grant that your servants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Empower us to do what you've commanded us to do. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and indeed got the answer to their prayer. They began to speak the word of God with what? Boldness, openness. We need to learn to look up. They needed to learn that as a lesson urgently because Christ is about to offer himself up for us and then send them out to work for him. You know something? The resurrection proves he is exactly who he claimed to be. If he can come back from the dead, he can bring you back too. If he can calm the sea, he can calm your sea too. If he's called you to be his kind of person and live for him in a lost and a fallen world, and there are times when, that's out, when you're out of your depth, when that's beyond your own ability to do it, you know what you need to do? Ask Him for strength. Ask Him for His enabling grace and power. And then in obedience and faith, step out and do what He told you to do. And watch how He works through you. Amen? Father, thank You so much for sending Your Son to die for us and for giving Your Word to instruct us and Your Spirit to enable us to live lives that bring glory to you, our great and glorious God. In Christ's name I pray.